Welcome to Threshold Stories, crossing thresholds one story at a time. I'm your host, Jeff Gora. Alex, here we are, kicking off a conversation where we're going to try together current events, things that thinkers do, and Jesus, all at the same time. What do you think about that? Difficult task, but we'll do our best. Right? We're going to have at it. So, part of this has to be contingent on current events, because Christ always concerned himself with current events. Mm. It was always an ongoing conversation with the people and what they were doing right then. Not so much in the past, or there was some future conversation. But So, Germany is getting ready to do a trial of universal basic income, UBI. Their claims are, we're going to do this event over three years where we're going to pay everybody in the study, and granted there's only 120 people in the study, 1,200 euros per month to test basic universal income. And with that, they're going to um, wipe away all other forms of subsidies, i.e. there's not going to be any sort of a um, test to determine whether or not you're eligible or not. It's um, to minimize the administrative cost of determining whether or not you're eligible for food stamps, well, whether or not you're eligible for unemployment or not. You're just going to get this amount. Do they happen to mention what the threshold for success is? So as of right now, the claim at the document, at the, at the lump sum um, study is, the idea is to gain traction amid financial crisis and growing inequality by implementing a universal basic income that will allow people to determine on their own whether or not they were successful or not. So they're going to have a metric at the end where they're going to interview both the people who were on this and the people who weren't to determine um, the impact on their quote-unquote lives, work, and emotional state by having this income in their lives. So at the end of three years, we say, hey, we gave you money. Did you enjoy that? <laughs> How do you feel about receiving free money? Right. Did that have a positive impact on you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, there's no reference in here to, it says right in here, this is regardless of current income or employment status. And it says it's an effective tool. They believe it'll be an effective tool at replacing means-based testing to determine benefits. So what do you think of that idea? The means-based testing to determine benefits being a thing of the past. Yeah, this has been tried before. This idea has been floated many times, and it, and it overlooks some basic, basic economic truths. So if we, if we remove means-based testing, first of all, this is like your insurance company just paying you every single month because we like you. Right, so that doesn't make any sense at all. That's that's not why you and that's not why you insure something so you can receive cash guaranteed. That doesn't work. Isn't that how an annuity works, though? Uh, it is, but there has to be an investment. Correct. There. Right. Right. And so this gets back to like thermodynamics type economics. Right. I can't get more out if than what I put in unless I allow time to grow my money. And Germany's not going to take this money and go into the private stock market and risk it all, right? This is money that they've just collected from taxation. Mm-hmm. They've just got it. So it's fresh cash. Hadn't had a chance to grow. So how, how, how are we multiplying this? It's not built on multiplication. It's built on more people paying into the system. And Germany has a, uh, a demographic problem. Their birth rate is below replacement level. Mm, right. S- same, same problem we're experiencing with Social Security. So you had a quote that you shared with me earlier that I want to read out loud. It says, for every person who receives without working, someone will work without receiving. Yeah, that's right. And that's true for all taxation. 
So any, any taxation that we collect in the name of helping better someone else's life, mm-hmm. what we're doing is taking from a person who actually produced that value and that value resulted in cash and we're taking a piece of it and then we're giving it to someone else who did not produce value. And that's an immutable law. Right. If we abandon that concept and we said, we'll just fire up the printer, printer go and we spit out new cash, then we're we're committing the sin of of unlimited inflation. Right. So instead, we're going to we have to produce value, but we're right. going to take yours and give it to someone. So the so wealth has to come from somewhere Has yeah. to. And, and back in the day when we forced people to work without receiving the fruits of their labor, we had a word for that. It was called slavery. That's right. It was. Yeah. Mm hmm. So as a, tell me, I'm going to, I want to share a taxation event because the ties to universal basic income. Mine, mine, universal basic income includes that which you need to subsist. So mm-hmm. a place to live that's safe mm-hmm. and safe is of course very tenable. There's mm-hmm. a lot of meanings based on who you're at, who you are. Um, food necessary to sustain a lifestyle that's active. Mm-hmm. Active lifestyle is obviously fungible. People think, you know, a thousand steps a day and bending over to tie your shoes twice. Mm-hmm. It's an active lifestyle. Um, but I don't think it includes entertainment, anything associated with supporting the things you do when your time is off. This is what you would need to live such that if you didn't get it, you would die. Right. So it's not that you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't be well off. It's if you didn't get it, you would die. And I don't know if this $1,400 equivalent or month is that or not. I've, I've, I've been to Germany recently, but I can't speak of whether or not you can live and eat on 1400 a month, but yeah. that's their claim. And the cash is fungible. Right. So if I tuck in $1,400 at the bottom end, Mm -hmm. that's no different than the $1,400 at the top end that I spend on earbuds and and a new laptop. Right. Right. So it's dollars are fungible. It doesn't matter where you tuck it in. So that, 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 again, another my my story that I want to tie back to is, um, I guess it has a connection with why these podcasts are happening in the first place. Um, in 2018, when, um, I, decided that it was time to sell my business and the capital gains tax was very low. I made the decision to sell my business. And when I did that, I was one of many people who were drawing the exact same conclusion. The, uh, the third party uh, that provided the loan to the guy who bought my business was backlogged because everybody was doing said same. Um, and I had for plus or minus a decade um, with that company, I guess you would say Six and a half years. It's not a decade. It was six and a half years. I took willingly a below average income because I was investing in the growth of my business. Not that my income was bad, but for the risk I was taking, Mm -hmm. um, I was substantially below market. Most people don't sell their house every other month. I had to. Mm -hmm. I put it up for collateral in order to make these transactions happen for people who, in some cases, I never met. When I sold my business, that's when payday happens. And that, that's kind of the unspoken law of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. The day you become a successful businessman is the day you commit to no longer being a businessman. Yeah. Because when you sell that business and the terms and conditions of that sale come to pass, like the guy who bought it, he was on the hook for $8,000 a month for a decade, something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a lump sum. And that lump sum was taxed very hard. Now, granted, capital gains was lower than it normally would have been. And that altered my life tremendously. But each time I hear somebody speak to me about the best way to tax, especially when they want to tax what they claim is a fair share and they want to tax the wealthy, I wonder how many times have they had a million dollars in their checking account? Or when was the last time they wrote a check for more that had more than seven digits mm-hmm. on the account? And then they feel that somehow they have enough knowledge from their $100,000 a year job to adequately explain and justify how those who 
aren't like that are doing things. It's kind of like the frogs deciding to tell the bass how to eat them. That's right. It's, it's kind of a, a dysfunctional event. Yeah. And when I hear Germany stepping in and saying, we're going to try to do away with benefits testing, and we're just going to give everybody this flat sum. I can see myself saying that's good. They're going to save on administration a lot. There's no. There's going to be an awful lot of emotional um, removal in the process. Um, but I also think it's craziness to think that we're just going to throw this money at people claiming that this is a minimum existence. Yeah. What yeah. do you think Jesus would do? Um, w- well, we know from the Old Testament the most God ever mandated from anyone was 10%. And somehow that entire nation was able to run all mm-hmm. the social programs that they needed for everyone in the nation, including strangers, for no more Through than the church, right. 10%, right? Mm-hmm. So so how is it that that folks like you suddenly have to work Monday, Tuesday, and part of Wednesday to, to release? How is that fair? So go through this Monday, Tuesday, and part of Wednesday math. There's people who don't follow that. Go through that. So let's let's look at let's look at it as a forty hour work week, and then let's break it down um, based on percentages, which is how most taxation is done now. It is. So your income tax rate is probably going to put you somewhere fifteen seventy percent. National remember. average is seventeen. Okay, mm-hmm. and then we'll tack the state in on top of that. Right, and so our that, state is seven. Okay, and then we'll tack our sales tax on top of that because every dollar you spend gets taxed. Yeah, our county is basically just like say seven to make the math easy. And it's a little less, but let, seven. Let's do the value of your home and all your cars, which will get taxed every year, even though you don't rebuy them every year. Mm-hmm. Right, and then we'll take all the licenses and fees and, and 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 the little stuff. And once we put all that together, your total tax burden is going to be somewhere around 40, 45%. Okay. Which for you means as a percentage of your work week, all of Monday, all of Tuesday, and portion of Wednesday morning is going to be you working for the government. Yeah, because they're getting their cut first. They're, they get paid first every single time, mm-hmm. right? And then lunchtime, right, you down your sandwich and you are able to go to work for the Gora family. Right. So, so that that problem uh, that we're not making a distinction between taxation and working without receiving, we just assume that everything we put in, we will receive back at some point, and we know mathematically that's simply not true. This is money that's being taken away from you that you will never see again, mm-hmm. never see again. So, that is what I would refer to as theft. Yeah, the um, concept that taxation should be fair is a word I think every politician has ever used, at least in our country. And um, there's the phrase fair share, which gets dropped around everywhere else. When I think of fair, you know, I I think of when I was standing in line at the lunchroom. And this is going to connect us to our next topic, which is food. When I stood in line at the lunchroom and grabbed my tray and went down the row, I got, you know, my burger and fries or whatever the lunchroom ladies were serving. But at the end, there was the dessert. And I would... um get a scoop of pudding, right? I'm just going to call it a scoop of pudding. Maybe it was something else, but a scoop of pudding. And um, I looked at my scoop of pudding. You can count on that. But there's another thing I also did. And that's that I looked at the scoop of pudding for the person who was in front of me, whom I was waiting on. Mm -hmm. And if their scoop was a lot bigger than mine, guess what I would say? Right. No fair. Yeah. You know, we had the same lunch. We had the same lunchroom lady. I mean, the same people involved, same process. What happened that they got more than I did? Why did I seldom all of a sudden have to pay a higher tax rate on my pudding than they did? All things out there being equal. Well, was it because I was skinnier and smaller and looked like I could handle it? 
right? Is it, oh, you're uh, you know, that we're going to cut we're going to cut him down because he's overweight and he doesn't need the calories. There's a it was either an outright error or there's a judgment occurring. Yeah. About who I am and what I need and don't need. Yeah, it's a very Western way of looking at it. You used a keyword there, equal. So Western folks, especially Americans, um, have a tendency that when an event occurs, we view it horizontally. Um, we don't just look at how it affects us. We look at it, how it affects everyone simultaneously. So you mm. look left, you look right down the lunch line, and you, you wanted to see what the relative size is compared to your own of, of this glob of pudding. That's right. right? So did. That, mm-hmm. that's very Western, right? And then the rest of the world, in the Eastern part of the world, especially older parts of the world, they look at this in a much more vertical sense, right? It's not an either or scenario, meaning um, it's not either everybody gets the same amount or this is unfair, right? It's unequal was the word you used, mm-hmm. right? Or the, the Eastern way of looking at this is both and, Right. Both of us got pudding mm-hmm. or none of us got pudding, right? We all got pudding, including me, which is fantastic, right? Because I had no pudding yesterday, <laughs> right? So it becomes vertical, <laughs> right? right. So, so my focus becomes on the supply, not my fellow receivers. For some reason mm-hmm. in, in the United States, in the Western world, um, we hate the people who are, who are our peers, mm-hmm. right? And we have this great anxiety that things will be different, right? Unequal. But in the rest of the world, we, we look at this vertically and we say, someone who owed me nothing gave me something, and this is great, right? And, and the idea that other people received mm-hmm. at the exact same time, regardless of how much it is, mm-hmm. is also a win, right? I'm really glad you got something, but I happen to mention that I got pudding as well, right? It's, it's all, you know, so... so you they, do not have the correct accent to express yourself as goodly <laughs> as it should be. That's right. That's right. But, you know, it just, it, 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 the, it, the, when you get to the root cause of that, it's... Um, There's it, a biblical story attached to this that we haven't scripted. It's this idea that when people went to work for a, a day's wage, right, and some people started right at breakfast, some people started at lunch, some people started right after dinner, and when they each came to get their pay, the um, owner of the field gave them what he told them he was going to give them, which was a... You got me. It's a coin. Yes. Shekel, Daenerys. Yeah, uh, you got me on that one. They each got a single coin, silver Mm -hmm. coin, for a day's wage. And some of the people who'd worked all day saw the people that only worked for a very small period of time get the same wage, and he approached them. And he said, did I defraud you? Didn't I give you what I told you? And, of course, they didn't have a response because they agreed in advance to work for a silver coin. Um, And there's connections between that and our story here. Obviously, there's an agreement in advance. But there's also expectations we bring to transactions. Yeah. I don't know what the German people are going to bring to the transactions with UBI when they start saying, I get 1,200 euros a month no matter what. Yeah. Well, we, we run into the exact same problem that you, you mentioned. Um, we know that that $1,200 has to come from somewhere. So someone will work and not receive the fruit of their labor. Mm-hmm. And if we just distribute it amongst everyone, right, this is no different than if we do the monopoly thing and everyone, every time you pass go, gets $200. All we're doing is raising the price of everything every time the cycle completes mm-hmm. itself. So there's no biblical precedent anywhere that this is a good idea, right? And we fundamentally remove the thing that makes money work because money is just little green slips of paper, 
right, at the end of the day, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. I guess, you know, if you need a fire starter or something, it would work for that. But other than that, it has no intrinsic value. What makes it valuable is the work that goes into it to get it. So it's either goods mm-hmm. or services. And this is the problem that we've had during the, the COVID crisis. Is It's not that, that, you know, part of the problem is that money is being printed at an exponential rate. That's part of it. But the real catastrophe is that goods and services, the things that provide the value to the little green tickets, is not occurring. So if you've got rampant printing going on, and low production, we call that hyperinflation. And, and we're, they're doing all these different things to try to stave that off, mm-hmm. mitigate that risk. Um, but they're pulling levers. You know, it's the man behind the curtain thing. So that'll work for as long as it works. And then one day it would So as a, as a cyclist who hits a couple of different shops and leads people on tours around the world in our state, um, I've seen bike availability hit right in the face with this goods and services issue. Mm-hmm. People are walking in willing to buy a good bike it's part of the response to COVID. And there's lots of bike shops. Well, I think all bike shops would say this. They don't have the bikes to sell. Mm-hmm. They reach out to their manufacturers and wherever the manufacturers are at. And the manufacturers don't have the production to support the demand. And you don't get a straight answer about when you're going to get it. That's right. The bike owners have no answer to give you. They say, I don't know. And it becomes a joke and, you can do anything you want to to shop online. It's I, the same situation again and again. This is the biggest non-mystery in the history of mankind. So this is the mecca of capitalism, right? America is the home of capitalism where we turn work into money really, really efficiently, right? We do it really well. And so no Americans have a point of reference where it comes to walking in to a store and looking at an empty shelf. Right. What do you mean the Amazon truck is not going to drop it at my front door tomorrow? I'm a prime customer, please. Right. Right. So we don't understand that. So it's, it's amazing to me that the immediate response from from most of the people that I circulate with um, has been something akin to, well, people are scared and they're buying it all up. They're, they're just people are hoarding it and the yeah. price gougers are, are raising their prices. And so, again, Western minds looking at this horizontally and trying to trace the problem back through our peers, right? Blame them. When you and I just explained that that's not the case at all. It's a vertical, it's a supply problem. So the thing, the widget is not being produced. It does not exist. And instead of looking at that, mm-hmm. we've chosen to, re- to blame our neighbors. Yeah. So I, for mine, my, my angle was the bicycle since that's kind of what I used as my hope tool when I had my accident a few months ago to, to get back to a space of normal. Mm. But talking about getting to a space of normal and taking care of our bodies, because that's kind of the transition that we're doing here from UBI to ideas. You know, Linda and I teach a course, Faith, Food, and Fitness, and the kind of the core of the course is to give people this um, sense of freedom and give them a safe place to ask the question, what is God's will for my body? What is God's will for my time? Mm-hmm. And they generally don't get a canned answer in church or uh, an example in church to show them how it works. So I've kind of taken it upon myself. And and so if if I take a stare at the, the, the the foundation of this course, and we're going to use this to jump into a conversation about food. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a lot that you have a story to tell with that. It's um, Romans 12 one. So in the Bible, if you break it into two books, old and new, there's lots of references in the old to the concept of sacrifice, meaning we screw up. There's a sin. You have to pay a price for that sin. 
and there's a sacrifice that needs to be made for that. I mean, today we say to pay a price for sin is jail time, a fine, something like that. That's the 21st, 20th century Western. But back then, an animal had to die, right? A cow, a goat, a sheep, a dove, whatever, and there was a specific place you had to go to do it called the temple. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the sacrifice. I'm going to die for your sins. And if you believe in me, the gift for you is no consequence associated for your sins in heaven. doesn't mean you won't have one on earth. That's not what he says, but he says there's not one in heaven. But there's this little snippet in the middle of this whole thing where the concept of living sacrifice gets introduced, and it's only introduced and used in this one spot. And um, it's at the end of what I call Charlie Brown's Teacher's Discourse. So Paul writes a lot of stuff in the New Testament, and that first 11 chapters of Romans reminds me of listening to Charlie Brown's teacher. Because it's a lot of theology and doctrine and stuff that if you're not super interested, that's a bad place to start reading the Bible. So he gets to the tower to chapter 12 and he uses this word that he only uses five times total out of the thousands that he writes since the word therefore. He says, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. By doing this, this is your true act of worship. And that word for true is a singular word that they use in there called legitike or legitica. Logical is the same word as legitike, but he says this only makes, it's the equivalent, another equivalent translation is this is the only thing that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not just as this is a thing that makes sense, it's the only thing that makes sense. And um, you'd have to do an in-depth dive into the word logitica to go further with it, but... Most books say, this is your act of worship. This is your true act of worship. Mm-hmm. And um, for most of us, when we think of uh, bare minimum sustenance or bare UBI equivalent money coming in, we think of cash to buy all the food we want. And God doesn't have any expectation for us to do that. In fact, he says, if your body is something you offer as a living sacrifice, what does that word sacrifice mean? It doesn't have, sacrifice doesn't include satisfying your taste buds every time Mm -hmm. that is not part of the solution of sacrifices there's this concept of going without Mm -hmm. now if i asked you to give me a synonym for sacrifice and i asked 40 different people none of them would include things like dairy queen Mm -hmm. (laughs) or equivalent yeah right so we take this to um the space of food because food in our country has become um, um a competitive event not only from the supplier side but the consumer side where did you go to eat Right. Right. That's a conversation. And the suppliers are, you know, they're all fighting with us, right? They produce something. Everybody eats about 1,500 pounds a year of food, plus or minus. Oh, wow. That's a good number. Um, Population is growing at something between 2 and 3%. And unless you've um, looked at some metric, if you're running a food corporation and you say, hey, guess what? We increased our sales this year by 2% because that's what population went up. You could lose your job. Right. If you go as a CEO of a publicly traded entity and said, we're growing by 2% this year, and I swear next year we're going to grow by another 2 thank you for coming to the board meeting. They're going to pull out their little veto cards and say, next caller, please. Yeah. Who else can run this company? So these guys are mandated to try to get us to either eat more or spend more for the same food or cut their costs mm-hmm. for the same food. So, right? so when I go shopping for food, and I'm going to use the strawberries for 69 cents as an example. I'm looking at an advertisement in a circular on the newspaper or an insert that comes in the mail that says strawberries this week, 69 cents a gallon or 69 cents a unit of measure, whatever you want it to be. 
And that's it. That's the only metric I'm given. Just 69 cents for a pound of strawberries. I don't know where they're from. I don't know if they're organic, non-organic. They're just using strawberry 69 cents because they assume with food that's the unit that we're going to um, do all our measurements with. Yeah, they look at it as a commodity. All strawberries are created equal. They do. They assume that there's they're, they're, that's throughout. All the things are the same. So we've got some issues in our food service industry. Let's spend the rest of the time talking about everything associated with food since okay. we have some monologues to go with that. Okay. Um, well, uh, it's interesting you brought that up because, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a story that repeats itself in Acts chapter 9 and chapter 10. Do you remember this story? Peter has a vision. An angel appears to Peter and, and says um, he drops a, a sheet, something like a sheet, and uh, by the four corners. And when the four corners of the sheet drop, all these animals spill out. And the angel says, mm-hmm. arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm a Leviticus chapter 11 guy. I don't just eat anything, right? I got, there's rules here. And this yeah. happens three times, which is kind of a thing with Peter, right? You can't. Here's he, a pattern he, with three. Yeah. So he finally gets it and, and he says, okay, I can, I can, I guess I can eat whatever I want. But you compare that against Paul's teaching where all things are lawful, but not necessarily expedient right? Meaning good for me. Mm-hmm. So now there's room for discernment. You mean I'm, I'm on my own. I have to make decisions. I have to discern things. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, so we've gotten past that point. I think we, we've, we've kind of glossed over that, uh, to your point that, you know, um, a strawberry is a strawberry is a strawberry. And <clears throat> that's a bad thing ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, you know, I've told you more than once. Um, so my demon was, was processed sugar. That's right. Uh, and, and, um, man, uh, what's your before and after story with that? So, so I'm, I'm down 125 pounds. Now. It's, a, it's a, that's a big number. It's a big number, right? It's a, it's a crazy number. And the number, I never looked at that number. I never worried about my top weight, right? Because I had other numbers that looked better. You know what they were? My BP. I was always, yeah, I know a lot of people who are big. They, they swear to God, but their blood is telling them they're healthy. Yeah. Yeah, my cholesterol was fine. My blood sugar was fine. I wasn't even pre-diabetic according to my blood, right? And, and my BP was 120 over 80 all the time, right? All the time I was 120 over 80. So every time I get the upside down smile from the, from the doctor, I'd say, wow, I'm 120 over 80. Can't be that bad, hmm. right? And finally, my doctor sat me down and he said, look, here's the deal. You're compensating. You have an incredible tool in your heart. You know, you're, you're, it's doing a great job. One day it won't. And when it doesn't, because you're carrying around all this extra weight, you will die because your heart is worn out. It's enlarged and, and it's unable to deal with the problem any longer. So it's a finite resource and you're burning it up because you're stupid. And I, I, so I cooked on that a little bit. And that's when I was like, okay. No pun intended. No, no pun intended. So I kind of had to like mortify, make that sacrifice of, of refined sugar. So, and it, and it took a while. Wasn't so it? that for you was that item that triggered weight gain, processed sugar. Oh God. Well, yeah. And, and all processed sugar. So not just cane sugar or corn syrup sugar. Right. But, but sugar coming from, from grain, right. That I was absorbing through wheat, through corn, everything else. Right. So all, all the sugars, um, combined, I was big, just carbs in general, processed, cheap, unwholesome garbage carbs. So I have all kinds of, Research to share and, 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 and anecdotals to give on that. Um, 
but to try in the name of succinctness and because we, we want to jump topics here a bit on this food thing is, um, you know, for a long time, research has shown that when you're competing, doing something that humans are good at, which is endurance racing, like 74 year olds can still fly and run at marathon based you know, Olympic based speeds sometimes, whereas no other sports, we can do that really. Um, we know that he who has the most glycogen available will win. Glycogen is nothing more than the sugar compound. There's a lot of you know fraudulent research out there sharing that a ketogenic diet is a, is a long-term sustainable diet, and so on. And it goes with it. Well, there's a reason you can suck on a piece of bacon for an hour and it still looks like bacon, but a cracker doesn't even make it 60 seconds mm-hmm. because we have biologically designed to start digesting carbs in our mouth. We have all kinds of ability to pull carbs out of our stomach. The first two of the three layers of the small intestine, the highest concentration of enzymes in there are for carbohydrate breakdown. We can have the shakes because we're so low on energy and we can eat a bite of a candy bar and in 90 seconds the shakes are gone. I just don't care how many eggs you have. It's not going to be 90 seconds till you get that shake to go away because our bodies aren't architected. Now that doesn't mean we're not supposed to eat them. Just saying that we're architected when we're operating optimally to fuel on carbohydrates, but very few people work out like I do, like other people do where you're outside going 100 miles on your bike or running 15 miles. Most people, everything I just said is dysfunctional Mm -hmm. because for them, they don't call it sedentary, but you know, their target of 10,000 steps, that's breakfast. I'm done with 10,000 steps before breakfast, right? Um, For those people, in fact, any kind of normal carbohydrate concentration of the sort everybody in the world ate 100 years ago is catastrophic. You were one of those catastrophic guys because your activity levels didn't match that. So, of course, your body's going to convert that to fat because it's architected to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm a Western guy with a a business-type job. And I, I get it. There's the logic's, yeah. the logic's bulletproof. Yeah. What I couldn't get around was the appetite. I craved it. Well, so, that's because that's how you're made. Yeah. So, so learning to, to control that. Jesus called himself the bread of life three times. Yeah. He never once referred to himself as the olive oil of life. <laughs> yeah. It just didn't happen. That's right. That's good. I like that. I like that. So yeah. And food is, is crazily enough becoming, um, an issue not only as it relates to health, but it relates to commerce uh, and relates to business. And, um, you know, we constantly end up in this situation where we look to government uh, to help us with our food situation. And they've lied to us so many times, right? Those are the, the idiots mm-hmm. that sold us this pyramid that said we need eight servings of grain a right. day, mm-hmm. right? Like we're cows, you know. You know, if you're working on a farm or you're working in a factory, those, in fact, that number is pretty good. Oh, by the way, most of us aren't. Yeah. Right. That's a problem. Yeah, we live in a microwave society. You mm-hmm. know, we rent scooters now in a downtown area, so you don't have to walk. I saw. Right. I so, that. so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't scale, and it was sold as a hard and fast truth. And and by the way, there was no distinction made on on processed sugars at all. Mm-hmm. Right. No warning given. So so how do we get to a point where we can walk in and and purchase food and have some some confidence? that the food is yeah. what they say it is. How do we get there? So in the course, one of the things I like to teach is a wee bit of the history of the FDA. Mm-hmm. You know, it started with a book written by an immigrant, just Upton Sinclair wrote a book about the, the meatpacking industry in Chicago. Now it included the lives of people. And when you read his summaries, the book was meant to tell stories of the people, not of what they did, but of the, the this miserable lives they lived. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of that, it exposed to a lot of America care of literature that we're not we don't have standards that we adhere to 
about taking care of the food that we're packaging up and shipping from the heartland of the United States to the, at that time, the East Coast, some to the West, but mostly to the East Coast. And it caused um, legislators to jump in and say, we need to do a better job at making sure there's not rats in hot dogs, Mm -hmm. that there's not, you know, sawdust inside of our sausage. And uh, they created the FDA. My understanding from history was that the first FDA had something like a dozen employees, Mm -hmm. two people per location plus supervisors. And they were responsible for all the meat created in Omaha, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Chicago. As it got trained around the rest of the country, they had to inspect it all. And, I mean, now that the FDA's got 100,000 people on board, you know, um, they're looking at um, bringing in cosmetics is something they regulate as well. But certainly all kinds of food, they have the list on there. And they're also responsible for pharmaceutical regulation in a lot of ways. And um, we know that this process is kind of for sale, don't we? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely open to K Street, the lobbyist. So he, with the most metric dollars, wins, right, Mm -hmm. on on this game. So the government will say whatever they've been paid the most to say. So it's, uh, uh, and and people look at that and say, well, Alex, you're you're a voluntarist. Um, You're a capitalist. How is that any different than what you're describing when you receive money in order to say or do something. And my response is, but you're not going to pay me for nothing. I have to offer a product or service of value in order to retain you as a customer. The government, by having a monopoly on food safety, right, on the inspection process, doesn't have to offer anything. Why? Because they're the only person that can legally certify your food. They own that realm. Isn't that, that, that is problematic, isn't it? It's very problematic. It, it, it showed itself in the early 1990s during the E. coli outbreak. <clears throat> and during the E. coli outbreak, there was a fundamental disagreement between the state of California and the federal government over the proper temperature to cook beef. So the state of California mm-hmm. said 145 degrees and the federal government said 155 degrees. And the people that were working in the restaurants at that time said, well, since we live in the state of California, we only need to adhere to California state law their regulations so we're going to go for 145 degrees and when they did they happened to undercook technically a batch of beef that already had the e coli uh, Mm. pathogen in it and therefore did not kill it and distributed that sold it and several people got ill several people died children were effective uh, effective very very bad it attacked your kidneys Um, it does horrible horrible things where it liquefies your your solid organs like kidneys it's terrible terrible uh, effects from that Mm. And so that occurred uh, because there was no incentive for the federal government and the state of California to reconcile their regulation and make sure that it's effective. More importantly, because the company that produced those hamburgers Mm -hmm. um, had, had satisfied all the government requirements, they had no incentive to go beyond that regulation. They only go for the minimum, right? <clears throat> and once you do that, you've satisfied that, and you you can just point back and say, well, um, we, you know, we, we complied with the law. Um, but um, because... Um, so you think we need a third party inspecting yeah. and verifying food all the time? Yeah, I think so. And I think it needs to be a private... Any examples in other places where we've done this sure. kind of thing? Sure. Everturn a lamp upside down? Mm-hmm. What's there? Uh, the UL stamp. Underwriter Laboratories. Yeah. yeah. So Underwriter Laboratories, making sure your lamp is safe. Right, that it won't it won't suffer a catastrophic short and burn your house down. Right, on on average. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what if we did that with food? 
So uh, we have to teach people that they need to take ownership over looking at their own food and seeing if it's safe or not. Yeah, I think so. And and more importantly, look at um, the who is certifying this food and take ownership of that in the form of voting with their dollars, right? And, and purchasing food from people that they know uh, will produce safe food because it's been certified by someone else uh, who has a skin in the game. It's been done for thousands of years, right? You ever seen a kosher K? On, on food right it's a third party certifying that that food's been handled in a certain way to make it kosher right so there's precedent here i think in islam they have halal standards that are parallel to that that's correct absolutely parallel wow so between ubi and food stories from peter and paul we covered a bunch here yeah we did i think we came to one basic conclusion and i'm always kind of nudging this idea in the back of the, the my mind what's that um that god gave us free will that he could have planted us in the garden of even and, 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 and solved this sin problem from the outset by making us automatons where we just didn't have the capacity to sin. But that's not the definition of love, right? In order, in order to have love, you have to want, you have to desire, you have to sacrifice that thing. That's what he wants from us. And if he removed that from us, then there'd be no opportunity for us to experience love, either receive it or give it. Right? So he gave us that. Well, what if we applied that same basic mm-hmm. concept to everything we do, including food? Insightful. So for you guys listening in, if you have a current events topic that you'd like to hear how it possibly is connected to either Old or New Testament, shoot us a message in and, and we'll go over it in our production time and see if we can make, a, make something interesting come of that. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for showing up and everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds, One Story at a Time. Be ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gora Team USA.